0: Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Akud in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. We have another fantastic story for you in this episode and Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire is here to help me introduce it and our presenter. Hello, Katie. Hi, Susan. Yeah, let me tell you about the presenter. Jessica Miller is a
1: children's writer and a PhD student from Brisbane, Australia. And she's currently living in Berlin, as you might have guessed. Her first novel, Elizabeth and Zenobia a spooky and mysterious adventure story for young readers. It was published by Text Publishing and shortlisted for last year's Readings Children's Book Prize. Jessica has written for a variety of publications as well, including Kill Your Darlings and Stilts. And here comes her fascinating and fantastic presentation on the Surrealist artist Leonora Carrington. The Surrealists had a game that they like to play called Exquisite Corpse. They wrote a word or a phrase on a piece of paper, then folded it over, and the next person, without seeing what had been written before, added another word or phrase. And at the end, they were left with a sentence or story full of strange conjunctions. The more incongruous, the better. In fact, the name derives from one of the sentences the game produced. The exquisite corpse will drink the new wine. Leonora Carrington, alternately described as one of the most influential female surrealist artists or one of the most influential surrealist artists, and I prefer the latter, (laughs) led a life that reads like the results of a game of exquisite corpse, something like this. The debutante elopes with the surrealist painter only to be incarcerated in a Spanish mental institution but escapes to Mexico where she spends her days painting labyrinths and boats filled with lizards. Even from this one sentence it's clear Leonora lived a strikingly unconventional life. And it's all the more striking when you look at her firmly conventional beginnings. So Leonora was born into a family of textile manufacturers in Lancaster in the north of England. Her grandfather was known for inventing and patenting the loom attachment used in the production of Viella, a wool cotton blend that, interesting fact, was the world's first trademarked fabric. Now this contribution or footnote to the annals of textile manufacturing would have been the Carrington legacy. The kind of innocuous yet respectable legacy that by all accounts the elder Carringtons would have wanted for themselves. But then in 1917, two things happen. The word surrealism is first used in a play by Apollinaire and Leonora is born. And she is different to the other Carringtons. Alchemy was a subject Leonora would return to again and again in her paintings, perhaps unsurprisingly, because there must have been some strange alchemy at work for this stolid conservative family to produce such a strange wild daughter. So the Carringtons were in early 20th century England, new money, viola money. And they had a whole shiny lot of money to spend. And they spent some of that new money on Crookie Hall, which you see here, um, the family home outside Lancaster, built in a style that Leonora describes as lavatorial Gothic. <laughs> and you can see it here in one of Leonora's paintings with some <laughs> embellishments. Um, the grounds populated by fantastic fairy tale creatures that looked to have sprung from the tales Leonora's Irish nanny used to tell her. Uh, And please do make a note of this Irish nanny because she will pop up again later. One thing that proved harder to buy with all that money was acceptance into high society. Not that Leonora's mother Maureen didn't try. In fact, Leonora remembers her mother going to auctions and trying to find old oil paintings of lords and ladies that looked like they might plausibly be Carrington ancestors to hang in one of the many, 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 many rooms of Crookie Hall, which might be the very definition of new money problems. (coughs) Uh, By dint of perseverance and the assiduous application of large sums of cash, by 1935, when Leonora was 17 the Carringtons had gained tenuous acceptance into the aristocracy, to the point that Leonora was invited to make her debut in London at the court of George V. Now here we see Leonora and her mother on the night of her debut. Leonora is under specific instructions to be on her best behavior, after having caused a scene a few weeks earlier in the royal enclosure at Ascot, a great place to make a scene. Um, when she declined to mingle with the other young ladies or, crucially, the eligible young gentlemen and sat instead in silent mutiny reading a book, Eyeless in Gaza by Aldous Huxley. (laughs) A bold choice. So we don't know exactly how Leonora felt about making her debut and, as such, being formally ushered into the restrictive role of prospective aristocratic wife and mother. Uh, But she did go on to write a fairly astonishing short story called The Debutante, which might be illuminating to summarize here. So the story goes as follows. A debutante invites her best friend, who is a hyena, to (laughs) a hyena. hyena. It's like a a little rabid cat dog. Um, to trade places with her on the night of a society ball. And they hatch a plan. Together they kill the debutante's maid and the hyena very carefully nibbles off the maid's face. No, It's logical um, to, to wear as a mask. With her paws in the debutante's shoes, wearing an evening gown and, of course, the mask of human skin, The hyena's disguise is complete and she goes like a canine Cinderella to the ball. Things end not unexpectedly badly with the hyena eating the maid's face off halfway through the proceedings and bounding out the window to the guest's dismay. Um, And that's the story from which I guess we could extrapolate that Leonora was not thrilled about making her debut. Now the following year, in 1936, London saw another debut of sorts when the Surrealists put on their first group show in the city. And it was by all accounts a memorable night. In attendance were the performance artist Sheila Legge, wearing a mask of roses and carrying an artificial leg. Just your typical gallery opening outfit. The poet Dylan Thomas, who offered guests teacups full of boiled string, and naturally Salvador Dali, who also gave the opening talk, dressed in a deep sea diving suit, like the whole helmet situation. And he was dressed in a deep sea diving suit because in his talk he would dive into the depths of human consciousness. Get it? Among the artists exhibiting was the German-born painter Max Ernst, a founding member of both the Dadaist and Surrealist movements. And Leonora didn't attend this show, but she did get her hands on a copy of the exhibition catalogue. And she was especially attracted to one painting reproduced there. When she saw it, she later said, she thought, ah, this is familiar. I know what this is about. Looking at this painting, she fell in love with its maker, Max Ernst, which is just terribly, terribly romantic. And I hope I won't dispel the romance by disclosing the painting's title, which is um, Two Children Threatened by a Nightingale. (laughs) It's really sweet. So Max and Leonora do eventually meet at a dinner party. And here we see Leonora and Max, he's on the um, Left? Your left? He's, wi- he's not in the hat.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so when, uh, when they do eventually meet uh, and elope, Leonor's parents are not overjoyed. An itinerant 46-year-old painter isn't exactly the respectable husband they've envisioned for their 19-year-old daughter. And, reportedly, Max's wife isn't thrilled by the marriage either, which... (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's very bourgeois of her. But Max and Leonora are blissfully happy, and they move to Cornwall, and then to Paris, and finally to a farm in the south of France. And Leonora is a natural surrealist, and the years she spends with Max are hugely productive. They produce paintings that, while distinctive, also have a shared vocabulary of symbols and dreamscapes, and they're especially drawn to horses and birds. It's in this period that Leonora paints her iconic self-portrait, sitting in a room surrounded by horses and another creature. It's not wearing a mask of human skin, but I think it might be a hyena. Now here are two more works from this same period. Uh, The second depicts Ernst as a bird, because why not? and they clearly enjoy an intensely rich creative relationship. And for what it's worth, they're intensely in love. And Leonora fits right in with Max's circle of surrealist friends. In particular, she excels at pulling off the pranks the surrealists so enjoyed. Uh, there are stories of her turning up to one party wearing nothing but a bedsheet, and then fairly promptly losing the sheet. Or taking her shoes off at the dinner table and proceeding to paint the tops of her feet with mustard. Or my personal favorite, um, the stories of the time, she cut her guests' hair while they were sleeping, (laughs) then served it to them the next day in an omelet. Um, I don't think she cut a lot of hair. I think it was like a garnish. but (laughs) (laughs) But while the surrealists were wild and free, in some ways Leonora's time in their circle was just as stifling as time spent in the drawing rooms of upper class England uh, because the surrealists and the surrealists were mostly men had developed this charmingly misogynistic concept of the femme enfante the woman child which is well i mean it's it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like but um The the woman child, says Susan Aberth, um, through her naivete is in direct connection with her own unconscious and can therefore serve as a guide for man. And Leonora is embraced by the surrealists, but she's embraced by the surrealists, including Max, as a femme font. And this doesn't sit well with Leonora, who later says, I didn't have time to be anyone's muse. But who knows, Leonora might have stayed longer in this uncomfortable space between artist and muse, woman and woman-child, but then in 1939, war breaks out and Max, a German citizen, is interned as an undesirable foreigner. And he survives the war, uh, but his relationship with Leonora does not. So after Max's internment, Leonora stayed on alone at their farm in southern France before she's finally persuaded by her friend Catherine Yarrow to escape with her over the border to Spain. And the journey does not go well. And by the time Leonora arrives in Madrid, she's in the beginning stages of a full-blown nervous breakdown. She fixates on a fellow guest at the Hotel International named Van Gent. Uh, she becomes convinced first that he is doping her cigarettes, Second, that he, along with Hitler, is hypnotically controlling all of Europe, basically engineering the war with his mind, and third, um, that she has to kill him. So eventually, on the pretext of taking her to the seaside for the day, um, a cruel but necessary ruse, Catherine drives Leonora to Santander, northern Spain, and checks her into a mental hospital there. And Leonora undergoes some harrowing treatments, including electroshock therapy and injections of barbiturates that caused epileptic fits. Later, she described her time at Santander as time spent down below and talked about her illness in terms of a journey back to the world above. And she also made this extraordinary drawing which maps both the external grounds of the hospital and the internal journey she made during her time there she would, in some senses, never recover from this ordeal. Um, and you can see that in her artwork, there are often featured mazes and labyrinths and subterranean journeys. Now, when Leonora's parents heard of her plight trapped in a Spanish mental institution, they did what any of us would do. They sent Leonora's nanny to Spain to rescue her in a submarine. <laughs> Look, full disclosure, full disclosure, there are two versions of this story. In one, the nanny, who has literally never stepped foot off the British Isles, arrives in a submarine, and in other versions, she arrives in a warship, but I choose submarine. (laughs) And I feel like Leonora would as well. Um, After her nanny secures her release, uh, Leonora is sent to stay with one of her father's colleagues in Lisbon until she can be shipped off to a sanatorium in South Africa. And Mr Carrington's colleague and his wife are respectable people. So when Leonora tells them that she can't possibly go to South Africa without a proper pair of gloves, they agree with her. They have standards. And they don't want her white hands to get freckled. So they give her permission to go shopping. And Leonora goes off to buy gloves. And when I say buy gloves, I, of course, mean run to the Mexican embassy (laughs) and convince her acquaintance, Renato Leduc, to marry her so she can escape via New York to Mexico, which is how Leonora comes to be in Mexico, the country Andre Breton called the most surreal place in the world. And marrying someone because they can bundle you off to Mexico and save you from a South African sanatorium is almost certainly a better reason to marry someone than because you really liked a painting they made of an aggressive bird. <laughs> Nevertheless, things did not last too long between Leonora and Renato. And she soon marries for a third and final time. Here she is on her wedding day with her husband, Chiki Vites. And here she is on her wedding day with the person who becomes in many ways the love of her life. Uh, just a hint, it's not cheeky. In fact, even though he and Leonora were married until his death in 2007, if nothing more to say on the subject of cheeky, a perfectly unobjectionable man who turned a blind eye to all of Leonora's many affairs. May we all marry such a man. The person i'm talking about is the woman on the far well look i've put right here it's the woman yes great um it's the woman in the right uh, the spanish artist remedios farro who is shown here at her easel and here wearing a mask made for her by leonora Um, i think in fact the mask is supposed to be of leonora's face which rather aptly makes it look as though remedios and Leonora are a strange two-headed creature. Remedios, like Leonora, had moved in surrealist circles as the young lover of an older, more established artist. In her case, the poet, Benjamin Pere. Like Leonora, she had left her home, Spain, and spent the war years in exile before arriving in Mexico. And Remedios waited the war out in Paris, where she sold candy and forged artworks by de Chirico to get by. Looking at Varus's paintings, you see an immediate similarity to Leonora's work. The maze-like structures, the figures that sort of blur the line between human and animal, and the strange mechanical contraptions. Uh, Remedios also loved painting nuns and convents, like in this painting here, And that's yet another similarity the two women shared. They were both expelled from a long string of convent schools in their youths. During her years in Mexico, Leonora exhibited around the world and published stories, a memoir, a novel. She essentially established her genius for surrealism, for art, and for writing. But she also established and perfected another genius, a genius for female friendship. You could present dozens of Dead Ladies shows on Leonora's Friends. We've got Catty Horner, Nush Elouard, Lee Miller, Frida Kahlo, Peggy Guggenheim. Peggy's like a frenemy, but that's okay. Um, But it's the friendship with Remedios that's really at the center of Leonora's life. She and Remedios met every day in one another's kitchens They did things like they went through the phone book together, chose people at random, and then just invited them for dinner, which, (laughs) I mean, can you imagine getting that call? They concocted recipes and potions, cooking dishes meant to make whoever ate them dream they were the king of England, or devising a spell for erotic dreams with ingredients which included a kilo of horseradish, three white hens... A head of garlic, four kilos of honey, a mirror, two calf livers, a brick, two clothespins, a corset with stays, two false mustaches, and hats to taste. And most of all, they painted, sometimes stirring a pot or holding a baby with one hand and wielding a paintbrush in the other. And kitchens seem to work their way into Leonora's paintings. And when you look at her work, you'll often notice a kitchen, a cauldron, a meal, something bubbling in a pot. The kitchen was in those days especially a feminine space, a sometimes oppressive space. But for Leonora and Remedios, their kitchens became the spaces where they transformed, alchemized surrealism. As Leonora's biographer Joanna Moorhead writes, they took surrealism to a new place, a place where it was woman-centered and instinctive. And they shared an artistic relationship just as instinctual as their friendship. Um, as these two paintings, one is Leonora's, this one, and the other is Remedios' show. And they both have the same weirdly Gothic setting, the same elongated figures, both wielding a distaff, and they both feature jaunty hats. These are two artists talking in the same private magical language. And Remedios died in 1963, aged only 55, of a heart attack. And Leonora never recovered from the loss. Uh, But she does memorialise her friend beautifully in her only novel, The Hearing Trumpet, which tells the story of two women, one English and one Spanish, both in their 90s, sent to a nursing home where the buildings are shaped like birthday cakes and igloos and the door to the underworld is open. And they're no longer femme fonts, these women. They are glorious renegade crones. Leonora lived in Mexico building film sets for Chodorovsky, Jodorowsky, the guy, uh, <laughs> and making sculptures. And designing posters intended to foment feminist revolution, just basically doing all the good things, until she died in 2011 at age 94, a true glorious crone. At the start of this talk, I described her life as being like the results of a game of exquisite corpse. It's a game built around chance, strange conjunction and coincidence. But in fact, there was nothing coincidental about Leonora's life. It was a life lived with ferocious deliberateness. And every surreal, magical, or madcap thing that happened in it happened because Leonora manifested it for herself. She fought to be an artist and a writer and a woman on her own terms. It's a fight that I think many other women of her generation and many generations lost, not for lack of trying, but the endless appeal of Leonora's story lies in that she shows us what it might look like to win. And it looks pretty good.
0: (laughs) Jessica Miller on Leonora Carrington. You know, I've seen a lot of references to her as the lost surrealist or Britain's lost surrealist. But I'm lucky in that I discovered Leonora Carrington and several other female Surrealists through a wonderful art history teacher named Chris Hassold at New College. Uh, That's the one in Florida, not at Oxford, though it was modeled on that original. And in her class, we learned about many of the great Surrealist women artists of the same era, who were in the same orbit as Leonora Carrington. And at that time, most were fighting against being categorized simply as muses for the male artists. And I wanted to give you just a few names of female surrealists you might want to learn more about. Merritt Oppenheim, famous for her for teacup. Leonore Feeney, known for portraits of strong women. And Dorothea Tanning, who was self-taught and became a poet in her 80s we'll be back with another episode of the podcast next month until then you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram at dead ladies show and online at deadladyshow.com, where you can also hear all of our podcasts we are also on itunes ditcher soundcloud and radio public where we were recently featured as an indie show to watch so watch us and drop us a line and tell us who your favorite dead lady is and what you think of the show Thanks to Katie and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Support for this episode of The Dead Lady Show comes from the Berliner Senat.